Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Chapter 19 The operator asked me repeatedly to slow down, but I ignored her. A UN convoy is under attack on Wilshire, I shouted, trying to sound panicky, which wasn't hard with a gunfire hitting so closely. I gave her a hurried and rough estimate of where the action was, then begged her to send help. I was using a choppy VOIP fed through the comnet without visuals. She asked me to repeat, but I disconnected instead. Crassen had a foul look on his face. We'd argued the merits of blowing their cover to the PRC, and Captain decided the risk was worth it. Crassen disagreed, but once the order was given, he kept his mouth shut. I looked at the men around me. Captain, Crassen, and Boyd. If they wanted to live, they were playing along. They weren't UN. However, Captain was working on that, arguing his way up the chain of command through an illegal sat feed, trying to convince his superiors of the direness of his situation. We thought if he persuaded them that his death would be linked to their corporation and that the ensuing scandal and diplomatic problems generated from a group of private military grunts covertly infiltrating a foreign nation on the company dime, they might want to hurry up and buy our way into the UN peacekeeper's mission. A whining shriek pierced the sky again, and this time the missile struck the floor above us. The whole building shook, dropping sheets of dust from the ceiling. My ears popped, and the smell of burning things fouled the air. Captain was shouting, but I couldn't hear him through the ocean of dead air between us. The explosion had deafened me, and his words were faint echoes. Crassen put his hand on my shoulder and pointed. Lights flashed outside. PRC. The tong shooters aimed some of their attention toward them, and one soldier fell back, his hand gripping his throat. Another jerked and spasmed as bullets stitched their way up his chest before he went slack and toppled over. If any of them had harbored any doubts about my emergency call, that was surely over. My hearing was slowly returning as the gunfire grew from small pops to a full-on assault. The soldiers outside were shouting commands at one another and at the hostels bunkered in the buildings. The PRC had taken on the full attention of the Tong, and we had been momentarily forgotten. Captain was still sparring with whoever was on the other end of his comnet while giving me the middle finger. Crassen punched my shoulder as if to emphasize the disgruntled mood of his commander, then nodded toward the back of the lobby. Alice was just a few buildings away, in Hashmi's clinic, and I needed to get out of this building and into hers. I tried the few doors that were left. Most were thin sheets of plywood, the same as the front entrance, and led nowhere. Empty office, empty storage. I found one that led down a short L-shaped hallway to the rear entrance of the building. Old, rusted vehicle skeletons, the meat picked from their bones, littered the parking lot. I stood there for a moment, getting my bearings and wondering if I would get shot. When I didn't, I decided Alice must have focused the Tong's attention on the main strip of Wilshire, or else they'd abandoned their posts to help their comrades against the PRC. Either was fine by me. I worked my way through the lot, then up and over the fence that separated it from the next parking lot. I tripped over something in the dark, but quickly picked myself back up. 
I moved fast in a half-crouch, taking cover behind the shells of vehicles. I was about three buildings away from the clinic, then two. I went up a small grassy embankment, still keeping low enough to touch the ground. The grass was soft against my fingers and my legs were aching, but I forced myself forward into the next parking lot. I had to climb a thick, tall concrete riser and drop down into the lot where I found more cars, if I were still being generous enough to call them that. One was in good shape. I couldn't tell the make. Some Chinese model, a new one. I pushed at the makeshift door to the building, but it didn't give. Something on the other side blocked it. I put my shoulder into it and shoved harder. The door yielded slightly before the barricade reasserted itself. If I pressed hard enough, I could make a small gap between the door and the jam. I dug my fingers through, feeling for the obstruction, which was cold, solid metal, not a chain. Alice's men must have put something like a desk or filing cabinet up against the door. I rammed myself into the door with all of my weight. The door cracked under me, as loud as a blast of thunder, then I heard a scraping noise from inside. I pushed again, the palms of my hands flat against the wood, my feet set. Cords in my neck popped out, my temples throbbed, a muscle spasmed between my shoulders, and something snapped painfully deep in my back. The door opened wide enough for me to slide through. I had to catch my breath. Despite the cold sweat breaking out against my forehead, I had no time to be old and weak. I shimmied past the tall cabinet that had been blocking the door. The damn thing had barely moved before it had butted up against a desk and stuck. I heard the soft murmur of voices. The people in the room had to have heard the commotion, I thought, wondering how loud it had really been. The cabinet had slid over ratty old carpet, maybe bumped the desk. It may not have been so loud. Maybe it seemed louder to me because I'd been trying to be quiet. A dim glow at the end of the hallway offered enough light for me to see. I was in a reception area with a wall of dusty old blue file folders, a few green, a few orange, divided by alphabetical tabs. No one had gone through them in a long time, and I was surprised by this. Social security numbers were in those files, along with dates of birth and all kinds of private information that could be used to build false identities to get out of California. Probably nobody had gone in there because the neighborhood was protected by the Tong and Alice Shi, who could use and sell that kind of information. Following the light, I moved slowly, afraid of making any further disturbance that would alert them to my presence. A hallway ran the length of the receptionist's area, forming a T-intersection with the exam rooms off to the left and right. The light I was chasing spilled from a room around the corner. Somebody coughed. I snuck a look and saw an Asian man come out of a room a few doors down and turn right to continue down the stretch of hall. He carried an assault rifle. In order to get to him, I would have to pass the lit room. I waited and watched. A shiver ran through me from the sweat puddling under my arms and against my chest, making the shirt tacky against my skin. My nerves were bothering me more than the heat, and I wiped sweat away from my brow. Coming alone had been stupid. The guard went down to the end of the hall, to a small window that faced the side of the next building. Not much of a view. He started to come back down toward me, and I slunk back toward the opening of the reception area, out of his line of sight. It put him out of my line of sight, too. I guessed at the amount of time it had taken him to get from one end of the hall to the other. Then I crab-walked back to the intersection and glanced around the corner to the left. He was there, his back turned to me. I checked behind me, saw flittering shadows against the wall, and made my move, fast. Most of the time, getting hit in the head dazes a guy. 
He doesn't fall unconscious right away, not like in the holovids. I clubbed the man with the butt of the gun, catching him on the side of his face right as he was turning back toward me, maybe sensing I was there. He was off balance and shuffled backward, scrabbling at the walls on either side of him, trying to grab some purchase to prevent himself from falling, but I was on top of him in a hurry. I hammered the gun down onto his face and heard his nose break. I smacked him again, hard against the temple, then he was still. I didn't care if he was still breathing. Outside, the gunfire grew louder, sounding closer since I was in the street-facing side in the building. When I turned, Alice, she stood there, regarding me silently. She carried a gun, but made no move to raise it. I wasn't sure if you would make it, she said. She raised the gun, pointing it at my belly as I stepped forward. I stopped. Where's Mesa? I asked. She's inside, she nodded to the door behind her. Drop your gun. I knew I should have raised it as quickly as I could and taken her down right then and there, but instead I let the gun slip from my numb fingers. I didn't know if I was fast enough or who else was in the room with Mesa. Raise your hands, please, Jonah. She tipped the barrel of the gun upward. I put my hands up and she motioned me to walk past her and into the room. I stopped at the threshold, my breath caught in my lungs. Mesa was naked and laid out on a stretch of white butcher's paper on the examination table. A host of wires ran from her to a cluster of machines and data pads. A thick group of wires had been fed into the data port behind her ear. Under the sodium light set up in the corners of the room, she was ghostly white. Don't do this, I said. Sanjar Hashmi stood over Mesa, fiddling with the connections while glancing back and forth from her to the machine readings. He turned toward me as calm as a still lake. No sympathy, no humor, a visage of medicinal cool. It's already done, Alice said. She's gone. I tried to stammer out some objection, but the words were clogged in my throat. My face felt swollen. My eyes and cheeks burned. My hands fell and I took two steps forward. Hashmi thought I was going for him and darted out of the way. Alice said something in warning, but I didn't hear her. All I saw was Mesa, and I went to her. A stray lock of hair stretched over her forehead, lying in her eyes. I brushed it aside surprised by how warm she was. Her chest rose and fell, no respirator. Her open eyes stared up at the ceiling, lifeless and empty. Her breath was hot against my skin, and when I pulled her close, her arms went slack against her sides. A strong hand gripped my shoulder and instinct took over. I lowered Mesa, then turned and launched myself at Hashmi, tackling him. I punched him once, then twice. His broken teeth cut my hand and his lips. A gun barked loud in the small room and a bright flare of pain erupted below my ribcage. The taste of copper filled my mouth. Alice kicked at me, forcing me off Hashmi. I didn't feel anything, but there was blood all over the doctor and the floor. I reached to my side, the contact sending a howl of pain through me, and my hand came away slick with gore. The medicines should have been pumping painkillers into my system, working overtime to repair the wounds lancing my flank, but they weren't. Between gasps of pain, it dawned on me how badly I had miscalculated. I shouldn't have come alone, not with Alice She in so much control over me. She saw the realization had hit and smiled. I pushed myself up against the cabinet. Alice stood over me the black bore of her handgun resting casually before my left eye. I've simply turned them off, Jonah, 
I could turn them back on, if you like. Her light, lilting tone was almost enough to hide the threat buried in those words. With a flicker of a thought, she could turn them on and turn them against me. The medicines were hers, and they could devour me from the inside. Those little healing machines turned into carnivorous killing particles. My hand pressed hard against my ribs, working to staunch the bleeding, but I was feeling lightheaded. I had come to the end of the road. I looked over toward my daughter. The lighting made the ink of her tattoo stand out harshly against her porcelain skin. Mesa is gone, Jonah. This is how it has to be. Hashmi was on his feet again, using the tail of his shirt to wipe the blood away from his face and mouth. His lips were already swollen. He moved sluggishly, but was cogent enough to pick up a scalpel for protection, just in case, while giving me a very cross look. He was leery, afraid of being caught by surprise again, even with Alice and her gun between us. He kept one eye on Alice and me as he studied Mesa's vitals. I realized the tears were falling from my face when I tasted their salt. Why? I'm leaving California, she said. Maybe the country. But I can't do it looking like this. I need a clean start. Something more than a false identity and some forged documents. I coughed up a thick wad of phlegm. People would be looking for you. Exactly. I have enemies, and they could track me down. I have what you call distinguishing features. A new body, though. That could really get me places. I could start over, be somebody new. How many people have the opportunity to do something like this? You killed my daughter. You could have left well enough alone. I could have come back to you in her body, and we could have left together. You could have had the best of both worlds. You could have had the chance to be a real father to her. To you, you mean? For a time. And then, when I finally left you, it would have been par for the course, right? That's how Mesa always repaid you, isn't it? By leaving you. We could have been happy for a time, though. You are one fucked up little bitch. You know that? Not my words. Captain. Alice was surprised to see him. I was, too. So was the doctor, who took a few steps forward, the scalpel raised before him, either as a sword or a shield, but it made no difference. Kafton raised the gun, shot Hashmi point blank. No questions asked. Kafton blew the man's brains out in a heap of gore, splattering the white flesh of my daughter's body. Alice was fast, very fast. She spun, bobbed away before Captain could get a bead on her, and opened fire. Two rounds hit him center mass, knocking him off his feet. I knew he was wearing a vest, but the impact still had to have hurt and had probably cracked a few ribs. She turned back toward me, seemingly surprised to see me back on my feet. Hell, I was surprised I was on my feet, but the adrenaline rush compelled me. I lunged toward her quickly, and she shot again, hitting me in the chest. But momentum and hate drove me forward. A solitary purpose propelled me through the blistering, white-hot pain. I wanted to kill her. I slapped her across the face and knocked her gun away. Her fingernails raked at my face, trying to go for my eyes, but then she grabbed my ears and headbutted me. My nose shattered and stars floated between us. I ignored the pain, nausea, and waves of dizziness, and I grabbed her hair, wrapping it around my fingers, pulled her head back harshly, and rammed my palm up into her jaw. I heard the satisfying rattle of her teeth cracking. 
I outweighed her easily, so I turned her around as she took another swipe at my face, her nails ripping away a long strip of flesh. I shoved her down onto the examination table, close to Mesa's face. I grabbed a handful of wires, tore them loose from Mesa's chest and abdomen, and smashed Alice's face down against the edge of the table, working to get the length of cord around her neck. Her fingers tried to worm through the wires to get a grip and pull them away, but I was pulling too tightly. Her foot crashed down into my instep, and then she hammered an elbow into my side where she had shot me. My vision dimmed to a faint, small tunnel of black, and I nearly passed out because it hurt so much. I fell backward, taking her with me, and she hit hard, knocking the wind out of me, but I didn't let go. I let her struggle. I closed my eyes and thought of Mesa. Then a new pain erupted deep in my core. The medicines went rogue, slithering through my system, organizing into a starving beast. Metal teeth tore into my muscles from the inside of my body. My arms cramped, and my stomach twisted into aching knots. My breathing turned ragged and painful as clusters of nanomachines clogged my bronchi. The world went gray as gut-twisting spasms shook through me and my throat burned from coughing. I forced myself to endure the stress, promising myself I wouldn't let go. Alice's body squirmed against mine. Her fingernails groped at my face, which I twisted away from her, so all she could scrape at was my ear, but at an angle that was too awkward for her to find any perches. A sharp pain exploded behind my navel, and the surprised gasp lodged in my throat, choking me to death while the medicines furthered their creation of a hernia twisting my intestines and setting my entire torso ablaze with agony. I yanked the cords tight, wrapping them around my hands so snugly that the skin stood out in white clumps between the wires and pulled harder. The fight was out of her, and she was back to trying to work her fingers into the wires and jerk them away to get air into her aching lungs. I yanked so hard that I was worried the cords would snap and it'd all be over. Her legs kicked weakly against mine, her body sliding against me. She tugged at the wires as hard as she could with one hand, then used the other arm to elbow me in the ribs and belly, anywhere she could. The sharp bone of her elbow found the bullet wound in my side, and a new wave of pain shot through me. The world went black and spun. Still, I hung on, clenching my cramped muscles to keep her from escaping. She reached back, raking my face again, and her nails came dangerously close to my eyes. Her face was turning purple, and she was, very slowly, getting weaker. Her movements grew slower, but I didn't let up. I couldn't. The plastic sheathing of the cords bit into my palms, killing the circulation to my hands and turning them into numb, frozen weights. After an eternity, her body finally relaxed, then stilled. One arm slid down against me, then the other. Still, I held on for a good long while, wanting to be sure. Slowly, the pain in my muscles subsided, and I could breathe easier. My stomach uncoiled and relaxed. The medicine stopped their onslaught as their commands to betray me died with their master. She's done, Captain said, tapping my shoulder. I forced my arms to relax, the coiled tension bleeding over into throbbing pain and stiffness. Kafton pushed her off me and helped me to my feet. I couldn't move my fingers, and the entire length of my arm was filled with sand and needles. I had to shake my arms, flex my fingers, and rotate my hands to get the blood moving again. 
With every infantile step, pain stabbed through me from the gunshot wounds to my torso. A small bubble of spit bloomed in the corner of Alice's mouth. I nudged her with my foot, waiting for her to spring back up. She was still. Dead. Mesa was still, too. As good as dead, after what they'd done to her. I stood over her and smoothed out her hair. I pulled her eyelids down to cover her blank gaze and felt the warmth of her breath against my bare wrist. Captain pulled over a chair so I could sit before I fell over. I wanted to talk to her, but I didn't know what to say or where to even begin. Words failed me, and we sat in silence. Captain found gauze with the surgical equipment on the tray beside Mesa, and he did his best to patch me up. He taped gauze onto my chest and side, but his eyes said I was a lost cause. He went through the motions anyway, like a good little soldier in an impossible predicament. Having done all he could, he looked from me to my daughter, then nodded at me. He left us be for a time, and I had the grim realization that I was in a room filled with the dead and soulless. Mesa's skin was warm. I was cold and searched for something to cover her with, to keep her warm, but I found nothing. I wanted to apologize for failing her. My mouth opened and closed of its own accord, but every time I found something to say, my tongue tripped over the words and I decided to be quiet. I held her and cried into her hair. Eventually I was able to tell her how sorry I was. She did not move. The world swam around me and I was dizzy and lightheaded. My vision blurred from the loss of blood, and I didn't know how much more time I had. I held her hand, my grip loose, her fingers limp against mine. I followed the long curve of the dragon's tail tattooed around her forearm and traced upward, to the thick body and the clawed feet that gripped the stubby ends of the strong Gaelic cross in a field of flowers. A story of her heritage, of her mother and me, of life, death, and rebirth. Her tattoo was a construct of imagination and fantasy, but I wanted her to know the truth of it all, not merely the idealized version. I wanted, needed, to help her remember and to rebuild her mind from whatever horrible damage Alice Shih had wrought. A sharp dagger twisted below my lungs and the world went black for a brief time, reminding me that what I wanted or needed didn't matter. The choice wasn't mine. Captain came in and told me it was time to go. He said the medics would come and take care of Mesa. He said she would be fine, but we both knew that was a lie. I was sweating and bleeding. A long stretch of red stained her white skin. My blood. I sat still as the sound of footfalls rushed down the hall toward us. Then I said goodbye to my daughter. I squeezed her hand, hoping still for some sign that she was in there, that a piece of my mesa still lived within that pale, fragile body. Her hand was limp and unmoving. I closed my eyes and joined her in the darkness. Chapter 20 Watching the rain fall over Seattle, I drank a small glass bottle of Canada Dry. Mesa slept in her hospital bed, her eyes occasionally twitching beneath closed lids. A dull throb beat in my chest, a small pain brought about by the change in weather. 
It had been sunny and nice a few days ago, but the forecast called for showers over the next few days. My hand was sore too. The phantom pain reminded me of the missing segment of finger. I sat in a small chair facing a small window in the small room. The doctors, corporate hacks more than anything else really, said they needed more time to conduct more tests, make more observations, and take more notes. They said she was doing well, and the way they explained it, without really saying anything, made it seem as though she was okay the same way a vegetable was okay. Earlier, when she'd been awake, the nurses had helped her walk up and down the hallways, her hands clutching a walker and slowly pushing it forward. Her muscles were fine, and her reflexes were good. If they tickled her foot, she jerked it away. Tapping her knee with a rubber hammer made her kick forward. All good signs, they said. And although her muscles were nice and toned and could support her body, she still had to relearn how to walk because that was just one more memory, an ingrained lesson at the core of her being that had been stripped away. It's a good sign, her doctor, who was one of many, had said. The PKM Zeta enzymes responsible for storing memory had been utterly destroyed, turning her brain into a blank slate. Her team of doctors had been injecting her with fresh enzymes so that she could establish a new network for memory storage. While her steps were steady and unsure, we had all noticed confidence, a level of comfort with motion beginning to reassert itself. She was relearning how to walk and storing that information so that she progressed each day. Learning to talk was more difficult. She made mistakes pronouncing words and kept to simple things. We were teaching her names and how to say daddy. When she was awake, I no longer appeared so alien in her eyes. I was no longer a stranger to her. I didn't know yet who this girl would become, but I vowed to protect her. I loved her, because really she was still my daughter, everything else be damned. She was still my Mesa. In the closet by the entry, I had a bag full of mem chips from our old house, of our old life. Good memories, clean ones that I'd avoided for too long. Maybe, when the time was right, it would help us reconnect and rediscover the lives we thought we'd lost. The memories encoded on those chips would be shallow, though. Without the context of the life lived around and through them, they would be nothing more than superficial glances into the life of another person from another time. They might invoke feelings of warmth, but it would be nothing more than surface deep. If she wanted them, they were hers. They wouldn't rebuild her or restore her memory, but they could, maybe, be a window into her past life. Whoever she was going to become was up to her. Alice, she had told me, nobody gets a second chance to recreate themselves or become somebody else, somebody better. When I looked at the girl in the bed, I knew that Alice had been wrong. Mesa would recreate herself like a phoenix rising from its ashes. I waited for that day, and I would continue to wait for however long it took. In the meantime, I sat and watched the rain. I put my feet up on the windowsill, cocking the chair back on its real legs to make myself comfortable. The nurse knocked lightly on the door before opening it. She plugged her data pad into Mesa's port, asking me how she was doing. Okay, they say. She's sleeping good. The nurse nodded and smiled, reading off her data pad as if everything was good and fine. Some nights, Mesa woke up crying. Most nights, I stayed awake while she slept so I could watch her. There would be a series of rapid eye movements. Occasionally a limb would twitch, or if the dream was bad enough, flailed and flung the covers away. 
The nightmares came soon after they began injecting the fresh enzymes, and I was left to wonder at the horrors of her dreams. What was her subconscious mind, perhaps as new and fragile as the rest of her brain, inflicting on that blank slate? What sort of confusing tapestry had her mind created to scare her so badly that she woke up screaming, tears running down her face? She couldn't say, of course, but she calmed soon after waking and was able to slip back into sleep after a short while. I had no idea what was going on in her head, so I would hold her and say soothing things that she couldn't comprehend, hoping that the softness of my voice would console her. After a time, it did. She would calm down and let me wipe the tears from her face as she stared at me without comprehension. On the third night, she wrapped her arms around me and held me tightly until she fell back to sleep. I kept my chin resting on top of her head, telling her everything was okay my own tears wetting her hair until I was able to lay her back down. After these episodes, she would sleep soundly through the rest of the night. In the morning, the nurses came to help her through her exercises, walking her up and down the hall, encouraging her every few steps, and telling her how well she was doing. When they brought her back, she looked at me furtively, a small smile on her face. She came to me and put her arms around me. She whispered my name, and it tore at me. One of the female nurses helped her get cleaned up in the bathroom. Mesa grew agitated when the tattoos on her arm did not wash off and we had to console her. Her wet hair soaked my shirt as I held her, calmly telling her what the tattoo meant. She lacked context for the empty words, which meant nothing to her. The representations of her heritage were lost on her. She was a woman without a mother or father, completely without history, a tabula rasa. The temptation to load her with memories was powerfully strong, but that would have been just as false, no better than what Alice she had tried to do. I had no backups of her memories, only mine. If I loaded her up with what I had, she would have a skewed perspective on a lot of issues. My memories would create more damage and cause more problems for her. I convinced myself that this way was better. She'd learned all of this once before and she could do it again. I tried to tell myself I was already seeing some of her old personality coming back up to the surface in small snatches here and there. I tried to think back to when she was a baby. Comparing things, I decided they were the same, but different. Harder than it had been then. More painful. Less confident. The doctors said that although she would never be able to have her past memories restored, her ability to create new ones was unaffected. There was no reason she couldn't have a perfectly normal life again, given time. In the afternoon, I rode the bus to Pike's Market and warmed the chill from my bones over a bowl of mac and cheese from Beecher's. The place was small and crowded. The line of people waiting for food stretched back out into the rain, a line of umbrellas reaching down the sidewalk. I sat on a stool at a small counter. Packed elbows to elbows, we ate with people standing up against our backs while they ate, not wanting to go back out into the cold, damp, and rain. I watched the fishmongers, dressed in black rubber aprons, carry thick-bodied fish between them down the street, past the flower vendors and men with stands set up to sell handmade leather belts, belt buckles, and purses. I watched the seagulls fly over the famous big red letters of the Pike's Market sign and watched people go in and out of Starbucks. All the life in this vibrant city amazed me. Whatever scars had been left from the war were cemented over as people moved on and the city kept going. 
the news reported that they were in the last stages of rebuilding the Space Needle and that a momentous reopening was slated for the next month. There would be a big ribbon cutting, probably set to some Jimi Hendrix tunes, and a city official would sign a formal declaration to make Washington State the province of Washington, Canada, and unveil the province's new flag and arms. I found it odd that I didn't miss California. The Los Angeles I had known was gone, dead and buried, and it would not ever be home again. Seattle? Maybe. Could be, given time, same as anything else. We were there because it was where Mesa had wanted to be, and as I learned the city and walked its streets, I found it was also where I wanted to be. My legs were sore from the steep uphill climbs required to get from one end of any given block to the next. I tried not to learn too much because I wanted to share these moments of discovery with Mesa. But I also wanted to find impressive things to show her, things she might enjoy. Captain's company had an apartment ready for us, bought and paid for. They'd gotten our asses out of the fryer after realizing what a public relations disaster they were sitting on. Captain's higher-ups had made it clear that our interests were their interests. Captain got a new assignment. I didn't know where, doing what, or for how long. He'd held up his end of the bargain, though. I had given him Jamie, and he had given me my daughter. I flexed my left hand, where my index finger was shorter than my pinky, trying to work the stiffness out of the joints, and I tried to feel something for him. I couldn't, though. We weren't friends or colleagues. We were merely two men who had the means to get something the other wanted. We had found a truce, but nothing more. I'd let go of any hard feelings I'd had for him the moment I'd put my arms around Mesa. His patch job with the gauze had probably saved my life long enough to allow the doctors to do the rest. California rarely made the news, unless a significantly nasty earthquake shook the state or a vicious attack from insurgent forces claimed a large enough number of casualties. The latter was rare, and I got the impression that riots, resistance fighters, or acts of terror didn't happen there, at least as far as the rest of North America was concerned. The state was a non-issue, old news. The media was soft on the PRC, working hard to avoid a fight with a bully by ignoring it and giving it a free pass. I was fine with that, though. I had what I needed. I went back to the hospital and sat with Mesa. She was awake and watching some holovids made for kids. The characters did silly things and she laughed along. When the vid went to intermission, she looked up at me and I kissed her forehead. She hugged me the way she had when she was little, her arms tight around the back of my neck. Hey, sweetie, I said. How are you doing? Hi, Dad, she said, and kissed my forehead. The kiss was wet, her words thick and unrefined, but she was making progress. The doctors had said she was a fast learner, maybe because something deep below the surface, some residual memories that ran far deeper than simple long-term memory, helped her along. The brain is an oddly complicated, beautiful machine. We may never really understand it, no matter how much we try to toy with it or manipulate and upgrade it. Rehab was helping her along, though and the doctors gave her educational uploads through her data port, small things like the alphabet and English recitations, slowly working up to simple mathematics. They were teaching her as best as they could, at a rate she could cope with and learn from. I lay beside her on the bed, and she curled up against me, as she had when she was small and much younger. She was, for a while anyway, a small girl trapped in a woman's body, a simpleton, almost. I hated myself for thinking of her that way. 
We watched the vid together, and when it finished, I sat up, pulling her up with me. What do you say we practice the alphabet, I said. She was happy enough to do it, and we started slowly. On our fourth time through, she recited the letters in a sing-song lullaby. I tried desperately not to think of Alice she and the damage she had caused or the ruin left in her wake. I tried to find peace and solace with the time I had left, which I was able to spend with Mesa. It wasn't perfect. Not yet. Maybe it never would be. But we could try. Alice had said there were no second chances, but I was going to prove her wrong. Mesa was going to prove her wrong, too. Sometimes people do get another shot at life. Sometimes they have to pick up the pieces of whatever is left and move on. Every ruin offers the chance of rebirth, but I would have to fight for it, to work at it, always. There are second chances, but they never come easy. Not ever. This was a beginning. The start of something new. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.